Hi guys, I'm Sean McCambridge. For over 20 years, I've been inquisitive, learning and experimenting with different ways to leverage our greatest asset, our minds, to work for us rather than against us. Join me as I engage with these inspirational guests to provide you knowledge and insights to help you achieve more. This show is sponsored by Stellar Recruitment and inspired by a company purpose and why, which is inspiring growth and changing lives. Thanks very much for tuning in. We're really lucky to have Holly Ransom here today. Amongst other accolades, she's been voted as one of Australia's 100 most influential women. She's done some amazing stuff at a very young age, spent time with the likes of Richard Branson, Barack Obama, Lane Beachley, Malcolm Gladwell, Seth Godin, Daniel Pink, just to name a few. She talks about a bunch of things from how to conquer public speaking to habits and rituals to get you to your best and also things like how to cultivate a healthy or better mindset. So she's an inspirational individual. The more I find out about her, the more impressive she gets. I'm really confident you guys will enjoy the podcast today. Thanks for tuning in. Guys, we're super lucky to have Holly here joining us today. Really thrilled to have you on the show. And I guess I did a bit of research, sort of just in preparation for this podcast as I do. Spoke to a mutual friend of ours in Lane, and uh, she said you're in for a cracking podcast today. But for <laughs> some of you people out there that aren't as familiar with Holly's background as what others are, I'm just going to give a, a quick snippet. And I'm not joking when I say this isn't really doing it justice. This is sort of just like a bit of a highlights reel. So you've been named one of Australia's 100 Most Influential Women. You're a finalist for Young Australian of the Year. You've devoted your life to leadership. You've got your own consultancy firm, Emergent, that sort of tends to a lot of that. You're a board director of the Adelaide Football Club. I think you're the youngest Port board. Adelaide, very important. Port, Port Adelaide. Adelaide. Um, youngest in history. <laughs> Not to be confused. No, so how old were you when you joined the board? Oh, gosh, I'd give my age away, but I've been on the board for eight years now. So, yeah, in my 20s, let's put yeah, it that way. Yeah, so, so she's still got youth on her side. You're on the boards or have been on the boards of big companies like Hudson. Uh, you chair the Pride Cup Australia. You're Harvard alumni, you're an entrepreneur at heart, and uh, really cool to see the work that you're doing with Energy Disruptors. You're an author, you're a speaker, you're a podcaster, and if you can work out the math, you're only 33. So it's crazy (laughs) to think what you've done in a relatively short space of time, and I'm feeling a little bit inferior at this moment in time, but anyway, it's not about me. So I guess, where did it all start? I understand you were born in Perth, but now obviously you've Mm -hmm. got some sort of allegiance to an Adelaide football club. So how did it all start? I live in Victoria, just to confuse people. Just to keep it a little bit interesting. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So where did it all start? And fast forward to where we are today, how did this all happen? Uh, I think, you know, like with most things in life, we can make sense of it joining the dots or we can rewrite things retrospectively in a way that is never possible to forecast in the moment itself. And I remember sort of being confused by that as a perception of people who'd been able to achieve things that I really aspired to or admired earlier in my life. I remember in my probably early 20s, late late teens, talking to a lot of people and saying, was the plan always to do this? And how did you create the plan? As though the expectation was all these people that had achieved things had had this perfectly mapped out and sort of, you know, one domino fell and hit the other and so on and so forth. And the thing that I actually almost found incredibly reassuring in a way that might surprise people listening because many ways it makes a lot of sense, but I needed to hear it, was none of them had a plan for exactly what it turned out. I think sometimes that's a relief because it can 
it, when you read things like you did, and that's a very generous introduction to give me, it can sound like it's all perfectly put together and it was always going to play out that way, which is absolutely not the case. But I think the way I would describe my life has been a strong sense of direction and a loose hold of the reins. I've always known very much what I'm passionate about and I had a very powerful lesson taught to be my grandmother early, which is, you know, when you walk past things, you tell the world it's okay. Mm. And I think being invited into that idea, not that I understood it, you know, at the time my grandmother demonstrated it to me, which was five years old when I was shopping with her in a supermarket, not that I understood that idea in its full sense, but much later in my journey, when I tracked back over what I've chosen to say yes to, where I've chosen to spend time and energy, it almost inevitably links back to something that I wasn't prepared to walk past and where I wanted to lean in and make a contribution and challenge myself to apply my skills and capabilities to make a difference. And so I think that's led to the myriad of opportunities I've said yes to, the choices I've made to go and learn and sit at the feet of certain leaders and understand the craft from them in order to be able to try and be more impactful myself. So I think it was very much that. And then really is, as one of my mentors, Jane Chuson, talks about, it's about in life, I think, putting yourself where lightning strikes. So trying to put yourself where you're going to collide with your purpose. Mm. Um, and I was very lucky. I encourage people all the time in life to do this. Volunteering gave me a lot of that early in my life. Mm. It gave me opportunities as a teenager in my early 20s that I never would have been afforded in any other way in any other sector. And it allowed me to test out my thinking. It allowed me to have a go at applying these ideas and passions I had to see if I could do something with them. It allowed me to meet some of the most extraordinary mentors and sponsors who have opened doors for me in my career, have taught me unbelievable lessons, you name it. So I, I also think that was quite a pivotal part of my journey was the good fortune I had both through volunteering and through other opportunities to find some pretty unbelievable mentors early in my life, Lane being one of them, mm-hmm. and to have been able to get their guidance early and frequently as I navigated those different junctures. Awesome. Well, you mentioned Lane and I'm going to mention a few other names here. So You've met people and dealt with people like Richard Branson, Barack Obama, Lane Beachley, Malcolm Gladwell, Billie Jean King, Seth Godin, Daniel Pink, just to name a few. And it sounds like your grandma, you know, mm. she had a pivotal role in shaping who you are as an individual. But of those people I just sort of mentioned, who's had the biggest impact on you and why? Or who's had that? They're all really impressive for different reasons. Is there one person that's really had a bigger impact on you? It's pretty hard to say just one because there's a variety of people who, you know, that moves beyond a conversation and into much more active mentorship or opportunities to work and collaborate with them. And there are others who it was one conversation and some of the insights that they shared in those conversations were profound Mm. and quite life-altering in that degree. Mm. I think it is hard to go past my grandmother certainly is the most Mm. powerful and profound influence in my life. What did she instill with you? Two things. My grandma has the incredible ability to make anyone who she encounters leave that interaction feeling bigger. And I think there are a few gifts greater than that that we can give to other people in life. Mm. And the idea that when they leave spending time with us or they leave a conversation with us, they leave feeling more confident, more full, more capable, 
more upbeat about who they are and the fact that they matter. Mm. Uh, and so I've admired that in my grandmother and I've watched that. You know, she lives in a country town in, in Western Australia. She will turn 93 this month, which is pretty remarkable in itself. And I still watch that play out in interactions that we'll have down at the local library or the supermarket where she'll just make people feel 10 foot tall. And I think that's an incredible gift to have. I think the second thing is that she taught me that leadership doesn't have to have a title. I've watched her time and time again and from the moment I was five years old step into situations where people weren't being treated as they should and change the course of events, you know, quite vividly. And the story that I tell for those who've read The Leading Edge, my book, is it opens with my grandmother and it opens with this story in a supermarket where we were waiting in line to check out and my grandmother chose to insert herself in a situation where the woman who was on the checkout, she would have been, I don't know, 13 years old. She looked very young, was being absolutely torn apart by this six foot something giant who she'd evidently given the wrong change to. And before I could blink, my, you know, five foot tall grandmother had inserted herself between the giant and the poor young girl on the checkout. And it said to this man, how dare you talk to this young woman like that? You apologise. And I think this guy had never been told off in his life because he took quite a few minutes to kind of take stock of that and he mumbled sort of sorry and quickly grabbed his things and wandered out of the store. And my grandmother proceeded like nothing happened until she sort of went to walk out of the supermarket and realised I was still standing back in the line sort of watching all this play out in front of me quite transfixed. And I said to her when she came back to grab my hand, I said, Grandma, that was so brave. And she said to me, honey, if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. And... I've come back to that line over and over mm. again, not just because of the way it's informed my choices, because when I think about that moment, nothing in that situation gave my grandmother authority. Mm. She wasn't a store manager. She wasn't even close to the size of the individual mm. she was stepping in to encourage a change of behaviour out of. And yet, you know, her view is, you know, we all have choices and I couldn't agree more wholeheartedly with her with this. We all have influence in our choices every day. And we should never underestimate that those small moments matter just as much as the big ones. And that is leadership in action. Mm. I think quite often we abdicate responsibility or we fail to realise the power of who we are in the way that we show up every day and the fact that we're all leaders Mm. because people in our lives, colleagues, friends, family, community, are turning to us every day, are influenced by our view and opinions, shaped by the attitude that we show up with. And we should realise that power and actively make a choice, how we want to use that for the betterment. And so for me, my grandma was really my earliest teacher around leadership and the power of us in everyday leadership, which I think is something we often overlook. What's your grandmother's name? Dorothy. Dorothy. So Dorothy, sounds like she's had a huge impact on her and great to hear Dorothy prevail over some of those big names that we mentioned before, but (laughs) I'm sure those other big names have had profound impacts on you as well, but it seems like your grandmother had such an influence, impact on you. And I think with leadership, one of the coolest things about leadership is watching it in action, not words, not espousing Mm. things, but actually demonstrating that and leading from the front. So I guess in that moment, she definitely did that for you. Just talking about leadership, in today's modern world, it's, it's changing, it's evolving. We're living through a bit of an interesting time. So, I mean, what's your what's your sort of definition or uh, what's your impression on what great leadership should be and ought to be in 2023? Yeah, look, it's a great question because I think it is really a moment in time where we're appreciating that leadership is in a state of flux. Mm. And one of the things I talk about all the time when I talk about leadership is leadership is by its very nature contextual. 
So it always has to be in response Mm. to the forces of society, what's going on in the world around it, because leadership has to ultimately work with those forces against some of those forces to be able to achieve, you know, certain goals and objectives, whether that's creating a more equal society, whether that's a particular goal around, you know, take some of our sustainable development goals around universal education and things like that, you name it. And so for me, I think one of the things that's quite striking about leadership at this moment in time is the, the change in uh, the way that we're, we're putting it to work. You know, if you think about leadership in the industrial age, it was typically a very hierarchical type of leadership structure where time in service equal rank and where you had this ability to kind of push a directive down a hierarchy and largely people would follow suit. In this day and age, that's not the structure we've got at all. We've got a decentralised or a distributed model of leadership where we've actually got to be able to embolden followership. So we've got to be able to create a really compelling vision and then we've got to be someone who can engender the level of trust by being the sort of person that not just talks, to your point earlier, but lives the values that people want to follow. So not just the vision but the values that people will get out of bed and say, yeah, I want to be a part of that. Mm. I want to make a contribution to taking that forward. Mm. So we're seeing, without question, a greater focus on purpose. We're seeing, um, without question, a greater level of accountability for something I'm quite passionate about, which is how do we close that knowing and doing gap? It's very easy to intellectualise some of this stuff, Mm. different to walk it every day. Mm. And I think we're, we're seeing increasing levels of accountability come to bear on leaders who are saying one thing and doing another. So that's an interesting kind of societal and generational tension at the moment. And I think it's one of the most dynamic times to be able to be in leadership, at the opportunity and the necessity to create and do it differently, mm. to be able to come up with new models, new ways of exciting people, new ways of solving problems. Um, I think the reality is we've exhausted a lot of the approaches that the traditional way of leading provided to us. And we also know that that model of leadership counted a lot of people out. Mm. One of the things that gets me excited about distributed models is they inherently support and present the opportunity, with not without intention, but the opportunity for a much greater diversity of people to be engaged in leadership. And mm. I think that's really critical. When you go and look at the leadership library, which was something I attempted to disrupt in writing my book, it's still overwhelmingly a lot of white male Anglo-Saxon military generals and kind of Fortune 100 leaders. And while that's an element of leadership, it is certainly not Mm. the totality of leadership. And it cannot be what we're holding up as the only model of leadership if we're hoping to really move the dial on some of the challenges that are before us as a global community. So for me, it's also an exciting time to be thinking about how we hold up different examples of leadership and we can allow more people to see themselves in this notion of being a leader and being able to be a part of leadership moving forward. Yes, no doubt. I think it's an exciting time and obviously you're a huge advocate of pushing, I guess, getting a bit more diversity and different representation out there in in leadership circles, whether it's boards or whatever the case is. And I said to a good client of ours the other day, their corporate photograph came out and I said, I know that you're dynamic, I know you're inclusive, I know there's diversity and everything else you're passionate about, but you know what your corporate photos look like? They just seem older, white, male. I know that's not who you are, but that's the impression I'm getting. You know what I mean? Mm. So I just think it's an interesting time where, I guess, we're evolving from a very set model of the world, and I think it's moving forward to a very different model, and I know that you've been an advocate of younger people on boards and that sort of thing as well. I think that's hugely important because I think how we lead and manage younger people Mm. is totally different to obviously how it was, you know, in times gone by. So I think to have that diversity of thought around the boardroom just makes sense, doesn't it? 
Totally. And I also think, you know, good on you for leaning into that constructive challenge because it's trusted voices that can constructively challenge in a way that people's ears stay open to it. Mm. You know, there's a a sense, I think, whenever you're involved in change that the challenge is no one's ever changed by virtue of being told they're wrong or by virtue of being told they should. Mm. And so there's a really important role Mm. for people to play who are being influencers, advisors, people that are in the ears of leaders in all different forms, whether we're talking about internally in your own organisation, whether it's a trusted ally or colleague of someone in another, in a stakeholder sense, to be able to speak up and challenge and say in the best of ways, like you can do better or this could look different or are you leaving value on the table Mm, or whatever mm. way they need to hear it, to think about it in a different frame. And I think that's one of the challenges that's on us as change makers is to think about what's the way we tell the story Mm. to the people we're seeking to influence in a way that lines up much more effectively with their own interests. And it was something I learned leading the Youth Summit for the G20. We were going to come in and talk all about why young people mattered and and we do. (laughs) But at the time, you know, one and a half billion young people across the G20 countries I think a mistake that had sometimes, you know, befallen youth advocates is we came in and made those impassioned pleas and while Mm. people agreed, there was no sharp edge to it. There was Mm. no, you know, why now? There was no compelling Mm. argument that meant in the list of many powerful emotional priorities because you can make a really great needs-based case for a variety of different cohorts and issues out there. It wasn't stacking up. And so we had to work out how to make a compelling argument in our instance about youth unemployment to a bunch of Labor ministers and treasurers. So we had to be able to present our case in a way that was going to line up with them. And so we needed to talk about things like economic scarring and the long-term ramifications of young people being locked out of the workforce Mm. and this economic multiplier we could Mm. unlock if we could reduce the amount Mm. of time young people spent unemployed. And So the thing I would invite people to think about who are in that situation of wanting to be the change but perhaps butting up against some challenge and difficulty in the environment they find themselves in is the adaptation is always on us as the change agent. Mm. We have to do the work of changing the story because Mm. the system is not going to change around us. And so instead of getting frustrated, we need to do our best to channel that energy into how do I go about this a different way. And I never know if these quotes are actually said by the people they're attributed (laughs) to, but the quote that is attributed to Einstein Uh, is that the definition of insanity is thinking we can keep doing the same thing and get a different result. Yep, love that. Love that answer. And I guess while we're on the topic of sort of telling stories or communication or the way we do that, I'm interested to get your tips around public speaking. I think I did a Google search before. I think public speaking ranked at number four of the most fearful things for human beings Ooh, to do. what was number one? I can't actually remember because I was just looking straight for that. Uh, it might have been things like fear of rejection and that sort of stuff that maybe the okay. Maslow hierarchies and needs sort of thing. Because quite often it does come out at number one, so I'm intrigued yeah, that three things are mentioned. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm guessing I'm keen to understand for you, being as great a public speaker as you are now, was that always the case or what are your tips to become a great public speaker? Yeah, look, it's a great question and <laughs> I'm very alive to the fact of how real the fear is for this in general for so many people. I interact with people every week who are seeking support and, and kind of assistance in improving their public speaking skills and it doesn't seem to matter how powerful you are, how far in your career you might be, how much of a technical expert. This fear seems to know no boundaries in mm. that regard. So. Firstly, I think the thing to say to people who feel that way is it's perfectly normal way to feel. Yeah. Like I'm actually the nutbag, loving feeling very comfortable in front of whatever side. In fact, the bigger the audience, the better. So I'm the unusual a part of the psychological profile here, <laughs> trust me. Um, the thing I would say to begin with is 
there it's an annoying thing to hear but in part because there's no silver bullet for this stuff but the thing I would say is it really is a case of practice and mm. when I encourage people to think about taking on this fear the thing I would say is you need to be mindful of practicing self-compassion in how you go about conquering it so what I see a lot of people do when they try and take on things they're afraid of is they go whole hog mm. and they mm. leap out of their comfort zone and they don't step. Mm. And so instead of thinking about how you break down a fear like that into 20 small steps, someone would go, okay, cool, I'm going to debut in front of 400 people at an event with no notes. That is a <laughs> recipe for disaster. Like you are just not setting yourself up for success there. That is like going to the gym cold, trying to bench press 250 kilos. <laughs> like it's not going to end well. You're probably never going back to the gym, yeah, right? Yeah. So... What you need to think about doing is going, okay, what's my my minimum tolerance right now? Mm-hmm. So similar, like keep the gym analogy going. If you mm-hmm. were to walk into the gym, what's like the weight that you can kind of just lift? It's hard, but you can get some reps in. Start there from a public speaking standpoint and think about how do I get my reps up? Because the more you get your reps up, the more comfortable that will become, the more the narrative in your story will start, the narrative about speaking will start to shift in your own head And the more you'll go, hey, I can do this. And it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy where it's like, okay, cool. I feel comfortable at that level now. How do I take that next step? Okay, my next step might be that I'm moving from just having asked a question in front of an audience of people to now being the person offers to do the vote of thanks or Mm -hmm. offering to lead my team meeting or whatever your next step on your journey is. Only you know that for you. But do that work of breaking down the big fear into the small bite-sized chunks Make the commitment to regularly having a go. Like that rep piece is important. Mm -hmm. So this stuff doesn't get easier if you do it once a year. Mm. You need to be deliberate and committed. And I always think when you're doing something like that, the best thing you can do is buddy up with someone. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be someone that's taking on the same fear, but it can be someone who's doing something at their own pace in their own way where you can be accountable to each other and Mm. say, hey, we're going to do one thing this month or we're going to do a thing a week that's going to help us chip away at this fear. And, and maybe it's really a, a safe feedback about, loop as well. Totally. Yeah. Be deliberate about holding one another accountable. Yeah. And, yeah, absolutely, they can be someone that can, can sit in the audience and listen and give feedback and encouragement or whatever that might be. There's also really great resources out there too. So you don't have to go it alone. If you're truly feeling like you're started from the ground floor, one of my favourite lines, one of my mentors used to say to me all the time is it's better to copy genius than create mediocrity. Um, (laughs) And so there's a lot of genius out there Mm. around how to think about Mm. structuring your story Mm. or, you know, how to build a powerful speech or how to get confident in speaking. Feel free to look at those resources and sign up for something that's going to suit you and give you an environment that will support you to kind of rip that bandaid off and have a first go. But a lot of this work I would encourage you can be done on your own Mm. and can actually be done with a buddy and thinking really deliberately about I'm going to put my hand up and step into some situations and chip away at that. And I think the biggest thing I can encourage is not only the commitment to doing it regularly, I'm a big believer and, and people have heard me say this a lot, but you've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable mm. and this is a great frontier to do that in. But that second piece around practice self-compassion, don't mm. go too hard too fast. Mm. You risk burning yourself in a way that's much harder psychologically to come back to than if you've gradually paced yourself and increased your kind of toll or threshold as you go. Yep. Love that. Love the parallels with another guest we had on the show called Mark Matthews, the big wave surfer. And he's got this great keynote speech, uh, Life Beyond Fear. And he talks about the only real way through any fear anxiety is voluntary exposure. So Mm -hmm. like you say, just building that tolerance and one day it's intimidating, but through gradual exposure to that sort of stimulus, 
you learn to sort of deal with that. You get your tactics and your tools and you realise maybe it's not as bad as what my brain's sort of playing it out to be. I love that point. That word voluntary, I think, is yes, really that, important. Yes, that, that is the key you word. Do have to opt in and, and yeah, for, for leaders sure. who are familiar with the term psychological safety, I've seen a lot of people undo people's progress yeah. by kind of throwing them in it without notes yep. or preparation time. And so if you're wanting to support someone, make sure you test the what is safe, what does good feel like now, what are the opportunities I can encourage you into, but really be respectful of where those boundaries sit. 100%, 100%. I think, yeah, that voluntary piece is just okay. And I think also having that wellness, I, I say to myself now, if there is a choice, there is no choice. If there's mm. a choice, do I, don't I put my hand up to ask the question? Do I, don't I take that opportunity to speak? If there's a choice, there is no choice, you know, because I think a youthful version of me would be uh, quick to sort of come up with an excuse to sort of avoid that. But you've definitely got to be up for it, don't you? You don't want to be sort of pushed into that because that could only exacerbate, I guess, that fear of public speaking if you sort of pushed into it, like you said in the beginning, you know, trying to do too much too early. So one thing... I selfishly want to ask you, and it was suggested to me by our mutual friend, Elaine Beachley, is a question uh, around how do you manage time and your energy? Because I often <laughs> have a struggle managing both. Always feel like I'm running, sprinting, and you know trying to keep up with life. So what are your tips and tricks in that regard? I only laugh because this is a conversation Lane and I have a lot. Uh, and I mean, I think it's one of those interesting parts of life too that's never static. Like it's yeah, always changing sure. and evolving depending on the demands of your time and, and your health and circumstances and all of that sort of thing. But I'm very passionate about the idea of managing time, uh, managing energy, not managing time. Mm. Lane was very pivotal in my recovery journey from depression many years ago. And one of the big things that I learned during that period of bottoming out is that I was someone that was really good at managing time, which is not uncommon for an A-type personality, right? We see the number of hours in a day as a challenge for how many things can we pack the hell in there. And then (laughs) there's nothing sustainable about that. That works till it doesn't. And when it doesn't, it hits a wall hard. And one of the things in rebuilding from that that I worked out is that I needed to be a lot more attuned to my energy. And so all of us have a natural energy cycle So we've got a circadian rhythm, Mm -hmm. like I'm very much a morning person, love getting up at the sparrows, feel very productive at that hour. Others listening might be night owls, Mm -hmm. you know, there's everything in between. But the first place to start with is doing that energy audit and just being curious around like what are your natural high energy points in the day Mm -hmm. because we all have them. And at the same time, when do you feel like you're reaching for a Red Bull or a coffee or needing a nap or whatever it might be to find a way through or find a way to kind of re-lift yourself back up? And the reason I say that is because the question that is worth asking yourself is in those high energy moments of the day, am I getting the return on energy they deserve? Mm. Now, if you're using those high energy moments of the day to be checking your email or scrolling Instagram, I can promise you those high energy moments of your day are not getting the ROE that they deserve. So we've all heard of ROI, return on investment. Return on energy is the thing I would encourage you to Mm. be even more passionate about. And so for me, that led to some really profound shifts because what do you want to be using that high energy time for the day up for? Well, anything strategic like that you're thinking on, so an idea or a puzzle you're trying to solve, something you're working through kind of on your business or in your role, a big project plan or something like that. Your key relationships, they're going to be really important to manage with high energy. Anyone who's important to you, it's important that they're not getting the worst of us Mm. or the low energy part of us Mm. all the time. So you want to make some changes where you can think about, okay, I can't necessarily not do those things that Mm. I need to do, but I can put them at times where I don't 
give them the best of my energy. They can fit in at other stages of my day. And so you start to move and shift activity around to make sure that the return on energy is working. The other thing for me that's powerful in that is thinking about what are the things you know your energy circuit breakers? So what re-energizes you? Mm. And how do you make sure they're building blocks for a day as opposed to something you fit in on a Friday night after 11 p.m. when you've done everything for everyone else if you still can? Mm. And it's one of those funny things where sort of I often think we let perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm. We tell ourselves I can't find the half an hour to go for a run. Mm. I can't find the 20 minutes to meditate. I can't X, Y, Z. And in reality, what it means is we don't do anything because we're waiting for that time where the conditions are perfect, where we can get that beautiful, uninterrupted period of time where we can do the thing we want to in the perfect format we'd like to. And the encouraging thing I found in my research for the book is actually we can make much smaller interventions, as small as three minutes of injection of physical exercise, Mm. of breath work, Mm. um, of any attempted reset, getting up and walking to the corner and getting some vitamin D, standing on the spot and squats, dancing around your house to your favourite song, whatever it might be. And if we put biomarker trackers on you, your parasympathetic nerve system will reset and it will start to re-energise and re-regulate your system. So the thing I encourage everyone to think about is great to work out what the big building blocks are, but work out what you're going to make your three-minute circuit breaker. Mm. This year I've been playing a lot with box breath. So that mm-hmm. idea that you do an exercise, really simple, mm-hmm. you breathe in for a certain amount of time, four seconds, five seconds, whatever's comfortable, then you hold that breath for the same length of time and then you breathe out and you do that sort of on repeat for as simple as 10 deep breaths and that will start to have an impact. So think about how you can use something like that so that you don't let flat energy, negativity, hard moments kind of sprinkle through all of your day. You can find ways of resetting yourself to go again and to bring the energy to bear that you want to to particular activities. It's not always possible, but it absolutely does make a profound impact. And I certainly can say, hand on heart, one of the most powerful things I've done in my life is start to manage energy instead of manage time. Love that, love that. And I guess you've talked about and you've given us some insights into, uh, I guess, different habits or rituals you practice or subscribe to to get the best out of yourself to stay well. What else do you do? What other sort of habits or rituals do you use on a daily basis to sort of turn up well for, you know, the people that matter in your life? Probably the biggest one for me when I did the energy audit and reflected on what gives me energy is exercise. So I Mm. am definitely need an outlet physically every day. Normally that's running. I run most days of the week. I do Pilates generally one to two times depending on my travel schedule when I can fit it in. But every day I need a half hour run or that kind of Pilates class for 50 minutes to be able to be the best version of myself. And I will safeguard that in my diary. Mm. That is sort of an important thing. It doesn't matter for me so much whether it's top or tail of the day, but it Mm. has to happen in the day because it's my mental reset as much as my physical. So that's definitely one. One of the things I've been doing this year more actively is journaling. So I have Mm. this discipline of journaling, just three pages every day. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I use it as a kickstart to intention set in the morning. Mm. Some days it ends up kind of being the way that I process and park what's happened in a day towards the end of it. But that's been one that I've been using as a really powerful kind of thought resetter Mm -hmm. because one of the things that's interesting about our brains is we say between 300 and 900 words to ourselves a minute. So we have this incredible epic internal monologue and that unconscious narrative can be helpful and it can be harmful. And so one of the really great disciplines of journaling is that we Mm. actually catch that unconscious narrative Mm. and to link back to something we were talking about earlier, Sean, you know, it gives us the opportunity to choose 
yeah. different story, a different spin yeah. um, to catch that and go, wow, I had no idea that's how I was thinking about that, that maybe now I want to go and actually change the way that I'm showing mm-hmm. up in that or maybe I want to say no to that opportunity instead of yes or vice versa. Mm-hmm. So journaling has been a, a big one for me this year and then the box breath has become my circuit breaker. Mm-hmm. So I've been using that kind of intermittently throughout the day as my sort of three-minute reset. Yeah, love that, love that. And I guess we're sort of talking about mindset and different things to sort of impact your mindset. One thing that one of our team members who got to watch you at Nawak recently, they love that notion of, I think you've got a jar within your office. And I think you can talk us through around, you know, putting things in when you either say a comment that's in line with having a fixed mindset or a growth mindset or something around that. So, you know, just talk to us quickly about that and and how else you try and cultivate a positive mindset. And I think you've got a framework for, you know, being excited and motivated about Monday as opposed to a lot of people go, oh, no, it's Monday. But a lot of my kids going back to school this morning, like, oh, I don't want to go today. (laughs) So, yeah, what can you share in that regard? Yeah, look, I love the fixed mindset jar landed. I mean, Benny will be familiar with the swear jar. Uh, and so we've just repurposed it in our context and that is we've made it the fixed mindset jar. And this was an experiment originally I did a, a few years back with one of my best friends where we were both going through a period of doing stretch goals. And we, whenever we step outside our comfort zone, it's very easy for our heads to immediately index towards more fixed and negative things. Mm. So we become fearful of making mistakes. We tell ourselves we can't do it. Um, We get particularly self-critical. And so we knew it was a time where we needed to pay particular attention to the way that we were talking to ourselves. And so the way that we chose to do that was we set up a, we called it the no negativity jar, in effect, the no fixed mindset jar. (laughs) And every time we caught ourselves saying something negative, so it's a bit of an honesty system, you had to put money in the jar. If you're up for doing this, though, the encouragement I always give to people is make it double negative. So actually donate the money. This is called a Ulysses Pact. Donate the money to a cause you really don't want to give money to, uh, which is a really great way to catch yourself and stop yourself because every time you go, oh, my gosh, I refuse to give their money, I'm not not going to tell you who who (laughs) we're giving money to at the moment because it reveals (laughs) a little bit too much of my politics, but um, the... (laughs) The premise is sound and it's mm. it's interesting because often in the first week you'll be quite astounded by how mm. much money you're putting in the jar. Mm. And what you're actually trying to build is that awareness loop. So you're catching the thought faster, you're stopping and replacing it faster. And what's amazing is by the time you've been doing it for a couple of weeks, you notice a dramatic decrease in the amount of money you're putting in the jar and you notice a really just a significant change to your mindset. And I find it's really useful, particularly at times where you're going for stretch goals, where you're seeking to be creative or you're stepping outside of your comfort zone because these are times when we know that kind of negative voice in the back of our head can come to bear more often than not. So I encourage and invite people to take that on. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. We have a newsletter called Love Mondays, yeah. um, which I'm sure we can share some info about in, in the show sure. notes. And one of the insight that that's built on is the lowest point from a mental health standpoint when we track mental health across a week, certainly in Australia, but in the global community, is 8 to 10 a.m. on a Monday morning. It's particularly pronounced for men in Australia, but it's 8 to 10 a.m. is sort of our universal low. And we thought, you know, from an energy standpoint, gosh, starting our week, heading into Mm. five days worth of being with our colleagues, focusing on the task at hand, et cetera, if we're starting negative, how do we shift that energy? How do we try and reset so we can be more positive and upbeat and fired up about what's ahead? So, We've got a free kind of three-minute read that aims to help you be help be a circuit breaker for you on a Monday morning, give you some ideas, but an injection of positivity can help you take more of the gusto that you want to bring to the week uh, into Monday and beyond with you. Love it, love it. And I've got, I've got to ask the question, have you always been 
this optimistic and energetic and positive or is that something that you've incrementally built and developed over time? Um, I think my grandmother says I was born in perpetual motion, so I think I've always been, uh, had a level of energy to me, yeah, that might yep, suggest. Yep. Um, you know, it goes without saying, and I know I mentioned, you know, the period where I was challenged mm. by depression earlier. It's n- not to say that we don't have challenges and struggles. Mm. I think there's a reality to life that all of us go through moments where things are more difficult than others or where we're challenged or don't feel as positive or optimistic. Mm. I think my default is that way. Mm. But there's certainly been periods of time where I've needed the support system around me to help me see the wood from the trees, to believe in myself again, Mm. to pick that positivity back up. Mm. And I think that's something I'd encourage for people to think about who are the people in your life that are your kind of support crew Mm. and Mm. who are the people that you're the support crew for Mm -hmm. because... This is very dynamic, oftentimes challenging journey, this thing we call life. And I think anything the last couple of years have taught us is there's Mm. curveballs kind of left, right and centre that can come Mm. out of nowhere and can throw us off an even keel. Mm. So making sure that you're not putting all the expectation to be able to handle all of that on just one set of shoulders and Mm -hmm. you're thinking about, again, yes, circuit breakers can be what am I doing for myself, so my Mm. routines, my systems, my self-care, but it can also be, Who are my support crew? Who am I spending time with? Who's helping me reframe a problem? Who's telling me it's all going to be okay and being my emotional source of support? We can't always do all that for ourselves. And so whether that's individuals in our life, whether that's getting professional help at times where we need it, we shouldn't shy away from making sure we've got a support crew in our corner to help us go through those more difficult moments. Love it. Awesome advice and good on you for being honest and real about your journey because I think some people, they see people like yourself and go, oh, Holly's this, Holly's that, she's bright, she's optimistic, she's driven, she's successful, but they don't always see maybe the real side of, not not that that's not real, but the vulnerable side, the downside of this journey yeah, of totally. life, right? We're all human. We all have a, a natural range of emotions and some days it's good and some periods it's good and other times it's more challenging, right? So sometimes Absolutely. our strengths become our, our weaknesses in some form of Achilles Hill sort of situation. So I love the fact that you're just real and honest about this journey of life that you talk about. And I guess that's a a really nice place to sort of land for maybe as we sort of near the end of the podcast, I've got four young kids. You know, Mm -hmm. I feel like hopefully my greatest legacy will hopefully be bringing these kids up to live a a good, healthy life as adults. Some days I wonder how I'm going with (laughs) that, but what would your advice be, you know, around, you know, kids to prepare to thrive? And, you know, I think it's an exciting time, but I think it's a a challenging time as well, right, with social media and the stigmas and everything else that's out there that I didn't necessarily have when I grew up. So, yeah, what are your tips there? Totally, and I should say this. I'm (laughs) I'm only a hypothetical parent at the moment. Uh, We're hopefully not far off starting that journey ourselves, but I don't have kids yet. So I'm purely coming from that perspective and with great admiration from those that are already (laughs) on uh, the parenting journey. Hats off to you. I think I can speak from someone who's uh, studied uh, and spent a lot of time looking at the generations, mm. so millennials and Gen Zs and and interacting with them in the workforce, challenges and the strengths of both coming in and, and what I guess I would hope for the generation coming through. I mean, your kids would be the next generation along after that. I think there's a couple of things. I think it's so critical. We talked earlier about this idea of getting comfortable being uncomfortable. I think one of the most important superpowers we can build in the younger generation is resilience. Um, mm-hmm. This world is going to be uncertain, ambiguous, volatile, you know, for as, as long as they're journeying through it. I think that's something we've, we've sort of entered a new normal of chaos in that regard. And so the ability to trust yourself and back yourself, to be able to pick yourself up and go again, mm-hmm. regulate, is going to be 
an incredible superpower. When I think about my generation, millennials, mm-hmm. we're often described as the generation that were wrapped in cotton wool and we're all given a medal for running in a race. And the very harsh reality of that is when you enter out into the real world and that's not how the real world works out, that is a really big calibration at that point. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the things, as, as hard as I imagine this is to wrap your head around as a parent because your innate instinct is to want to keep your kids mm-hmm. safe and protect them, is how can I give them the conditions, create the environment to allow them to fail safe? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Whether that's in your choice of where you send them to school, whether that's the extracurriculars they throw themselves into, whether that's the holiday project where you give them $10 and try and start a social enterprise together, whatever that can look like, I think that that's a really important part of their journey and an absolutely critical skill and capability. I think the other thing, speaking with an Australian lens, is we are so fortunate and privileged and there's privilege within that privilege, right? There's there's layers that we can mm. cut that many different ways, mm. but we, we are truly in the lucky country. And I think one of the most important things too we can do is make sure we are raising an aware generation who have a sense of that responsibility mm. and are working on catching their own unconscious bias and are mm. thinking from a very young age about how they can, mm. with their skills, capabilities and passions, make the world a little bit better. And that can be as simple as in the way that they're actively including people in the playground, whether they're catching language that shouldn't be used. This is not talking about the idea that they need to necessarily devote their life to a career in service. Some of them will choose to do so, absolutely. But that idea that we are raising a generation who are very alive to the great fortune we have to be in born in this country and all the advantages that come with that and also to the responsibility that we should bring forward with that. You know, I think that creating an aware generation of citizens, when we look at the challenges that are facing us, we're going to need a generation's worth of brain power and capability coming to bear on that to be able to make sure their generation live in a world that is not just surviving but thriving. And so I hope we can start them thinking about that and embracing that challenge early. Well, I think there's some great insights and views there. So I suspect uh, when your turn comes to start this family, perhaps mm-hmm. I think you've got a great foundation to leverage there and certainly taking some great points away from that comment or comments. And, and I think definitely that resilience piece and you sort of sometimes think, how do I build that resilience? But I guess in a way, it's a bit like what we talked about voluntary exposure, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's it's just exposing your kids within a safe parameter from time to time to deal with adversity and prevail through those challenging moments to build that resilience. It's not very nice at times, but, you know, I think it's necessary and it's such a great tool, you know, to set you up a good life because it's inevitable that in our life we're going to face countless challenges, some bigger than others, but I think that, that skill of resilience is such an important one. So it'd be good to see more of that taught at school, but I think that's mm. probably a conversation for another day. I think you've got some really awesome views on education, what Lane tells me as well. So we haven't got too much more time here and you've been very generous with your time, but maybe we can just sort of finish up with uh, you're telling us a little bit more about the great work that you guys are doing at Emergent and how do people find out more about uh, what you guys are doing? Yeah, look, thanks for the question. Um, so we'd love for you to, to follow along. If you, you can head to hollyransom.com and you can sign up to our Love Mondays free newsletter. You can also read some more information about uh, the epic challenges that we run. So we're very passionate about democratising access to leadership development. So after writing my book, what we did as a team was take it away and gamify it and work to use the best principles out there in terms of learning design to create an app-based challenge where anyone, anywhere can come and join in these communities that are learning and pushing each other month on month to grow and develop as leaders. So it's been wonderful unleashing this over the last year and having cohorts of leaders 
all different walks of life from all over the world come and embrace this challenge. So we have um, a month of sort of readying for a challenge, a month of intensive daily challenges where you get sort of a three-minute video every day and you get challenged to bring a concept to life and there's points rewarded and prizes in offer and all that sort of stuff. So we'd love if anyone wants to take on an epic challenge. And you can also read about the other work that we're doing uh, with that's the speaking and consulting work and leadership development on there as well. So please don't hesitate to reach out on social media. You can find me everywhere uh, <laughs> just under the handle Holly Ransom. That's a pretty easy name to remember. Just think kidnap. <laughs> and, uh, the, the, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Now, well, fantastic. Really appreciate giving up your time. Uh, once more, we'll definitely publish those links and details in the show notes. But you're a truly inspirational individual. Really cool to sit down here and have a chat today. I could bail you up for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> so unfortunately, we don't have that time. But I uh, really appreciate you joining us on the show. Some awesome takeaways and keep working your magic. Thanks so much, John. Thanks so much for tuning in. It means the world to me. Uh, if you got something of value out of the podcast, I'd love you to pay it forward and share it with anyone that might benefit. Thanks again for tuning in.